in a wheelchair. You can get out and you can now climb Mount Everest. In fact, you can run as fast as other, a horse or something like that. It's all possible through radical technology, but most people are so afraid of this stuff. They say, oh, I will lose my humanity or, oh, this will, this will make me not a person anymore. But the reality is they'll become more of the person than they've ever been. Maybe there are things way beyond what we consider humanity. Maybe there's, as we call it, humanity plus. So I think um, it's a matter of changing people's ways of looking at the world. We are sort of embroiled in this kind of very Christian or very, uh, you know, Abrahamic view of the world where sort of God created a biological human being. That's all we're destined to be. But the reality is transhumans believe we can completely change our structure, our physicality, everything about us. And once we believe that, and we believe it's okay to do that, then people are going to say, wow, any innovation is wonderful. Any innovation that is functional makes the human being a better, a better sort of living entity. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain-enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order, by going to disruptors.fm slash qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code disruptors at disruptors we're big on health and biotech for a reason it amplifies everything disruptors.fm slash qualia use coupon code disruptors and now let's get on with the program hey guys we have zoltan ishvan on the program we're going to cut all of this out so this is just to make it not awkward and get started zoltan thanks for coming my pleasure thank you for having me so zoltan i've looked into you a little bit and my most important first question is what is beauty oh wow what a what a tough question but i i have a pretty singular answer that perhaps some people won't like but i think beauty is whatever your purpose is and whatever your purpose is, how to most functionally achieve that. I'm an entire functionalist when it comes to beauty. I don't see things as pretty or gorgeous or things like that. I only see a way to achieve the goal and to do it most expediently. So whatever is the most functional path to achieve something is the most beautiful to me. And I heard your goals have changed since you spent some time in Vietnam. Yes, yes. I had a a pretty close... uh, a near-death encounter in Vietnam with a landmine while I was working uh, for National Geographic. And it really just changed my perspective on how I feel about death and how I feel about living. I I felt like after that moment, instead of dedicating myself to a career like writing and telling people about the news, I wanted to uh, overcome death through science and technology and perhaps use my journalism skills towards that. So uh, I've now been, I guess what you might call a full-time transhumanist. And I want to talk a little bit more about transhumanism. The purpose of this podcast is to explore the sci-fi future that we're working towards, and that's so much closer than most of us expect. So tell me a little bit about transhumanism and what people need to know before we dive deeper. Sure. Transhumanism is a social movement of perhaps now tens of millions of people around the world that want to use radical science and technology to modify the human being and also to modify the human experience. It can be anything from the use of exoskeleton suits to get out of wheelchairs, brain implants to communicate directly with machine intelligence. It can be things even as simple as driverless cars, but whatever it is, it's radical technology improving the human life. And we're changing quite a few of those areas as you brought up. 
what areas are you most excited about right now? Well, I think just from an, a, a sheer purpose of spreading transhumanism, what's really most amazing is this idea that we are literally starting to get rid of almost all disability. The idea that wheelchairs exist, they may not exist in 10 or 15 years. And wheelchair companies are very scared because they're a $50 billion industry. And yet through exoskeleton technology, we may not have anybody in wheelchairs anymore, except maybe right when they get out of surgery in a hospital. But the idea that you would have paralyzed people, quadriplegic, paraplegic, there are so many different transhumanist technologies, whether it's stem cell technology put directly into your bloodstream, or whether it's you know, other different types of technologies like exoskeleton technology, it's something that's definitely improving the human being and literally eliminating disabilities. How do we work at avoiding challenges with the incumbents? So for instance, when cars were first getting invented, we had electric motors, we had gas-powered motors. Electric motors were better by all, all standards, and yet gas-powered motors won out and till today have been mostly dominant. That's starting to change, but the, the industry has fought back upon it. And you see this time and time again when innovation comes. How do we make the change as fast and smooth as possible so that we don't have people stuck in wheelchairs for no freaking reason? Well, that's, that's the tough question. And, um, you know, really, I, it really has a lot to do with culture. We have been conditioned to this concept of deathism. And that's this idea that everybody believes that they must die. And the reality is that the human body is a machine. It can be modified. It can be tampered. It, it, can, be, it can be completely changed. If we start understanding that transhumanism is sort of the, the, the operating method moving forward for the human race, then we understand that everything in our lives is simply a matter of, is simply matter in itself, actually. And we can change it. We can modify it. We can tamper it. So when you talk about, you know, changing culture and telling people in a wheelchair, you can get out and you can now climb Mount Everest. In fact, you can run as fast as other, a horse or something like that. It's all possible through radical technology, but most people are so afraid of this stuff. They say, oh, I will lose my humanity or, oh, this will, this will make me not a person anymore. But the reality is they'll become more of the person than they've ever been. Maybe there are things way beyond what we consider humanity. Maybe there's, as we call it, humanity plus. So I think um, it's a matter of changing people's ways of looking at the world. We are sort of in, <laughs> embroiled in this kind of very Christian or very, uh, you know, Abrahamic view of the world where sort of God created a biological human being. That's all we're destined to be. But the reality is transhumans believe we can completely change our structure, our physicality, everything about us. And once we believe that and we believe it's okay to do that, then people are going to say, wow, any innovation is wonderful. Any innovation that is functional makes the human being a better, a better sort of living entity. I completely agree with all those statements. It does feel like we're starting to eat out of the Garden of Eden and realizing there's nothing particularly special about the apple, but humanity is moving forward at this fast, fast pace. How old are you? Uh, I am 45 years old. Do you have a goal? Well, my goal is to, <laughs> to, for you to ask me that same question when I'm 145 and me to say 145, I'm still here. You know, my primary goal in life is really not to die. And uh, my primary goal through that is spreading transhumanism in the life extension field of science as a means of bringing people awareness so that they also might join our social movement and, you know, give it resources, contribute to it, become scientists, start to study aging, start to study engineering, machine development, all these other things, so that the transhumanist movement grows and grows and grows. And I feel like my goal is primarily moving that movement forward so that myself, my wife, my two children, my neighbors, my family, my country, my species can survive indefinitely and perhaps one day not die. Now, what happens after that? I don't really know. But I do know that life's going to be very interesting, and I'd like to be around to see it. Yes, it will. And after we broke the four-minute mile, suddenly it happened over and over and over again. Once you see something's possible, 
it does transform a bit. Now, this is a little more, bit more technological, but still. You ran, for, you ran for president to promote transhumanism, and now you're running for governor under a libertarian flag. Talk to me a little bit about how politics plays into your vision. Well, you know, I wrote the novel, The Transhumanist Wager, which then on, went on to become a very popular book in the transhumanist world. may not be very liked, but it's, it's still a, a very widely read book. And it's essentially, to some degree, a political manifesto about one man who wants to live indefinitely and will do almost anything to achieve that. It was quite natural after spending four years writing that book, which really delves into politics, to actually say, wow, you know, our own political spectrum in the world, especially in America, has absolutely nobody representing science or technology. And um, I said, what we really need is a science candidate. So I, in 2014, founded the Transhumanist Party and um, with the idea of trying to inject American politics with science and technology platforms and people to run on those platforms. And uh, I was nominated the first presidential candidate. And... um, then I moved forward uh, as that for two years campaigning. And, um, you know, it got a lot of buzz, a lot of media coverage, because it was sort of the very first time any visible person had ever run under entirely a science policy, really utilizing the scientific method as the single algorithm to make all choices in politics, in any kind of format. And, you know, it's, it's a strange cause to say that, well, I, I choose the scientific method as my primary vehicle for making any kind of decisions, including political ones. And then, of course, that did so well in 2016, even though, of course, I didn't win, that I decided to take it to the next level and actually make a run for governor of California. Now, I did it this time under the Libertarian Party because there was more infrastructure, but I'm still very much running as a science candidate and, of course, as a transhumanist. I've always had some strong libertarian tendencies, you know, less government, more individual freedoms. It's what very much transhumanism is about anyhow. But so for me, it's not really about the parties. It's more the idea of representing science in the political world. How do we handle the fact that we are living older, which means we're also stuck with some of the same politicians who won't die quick enough? So that change, maybe that was a little bit harsh to say, especially because this is being recorded by BuzzFeed as well. But it's, it's kind of true. Nonetheless, we do see the older we become, the more conservative we become. And that leads to the spiral where sometimes things don't change or actually go backwards. This, this is, I'm so glad you brought this up, <laughs> especially with the BuzzFeed reporter here. This is because it's something we haven't discussed yet. And it is the, the giant paradox and problem of transhumanism. The great thing about death is that there has been a refreshing of the species, a refreshing of the mindset, so that every new generation comes around and has different ideas. The problem, though, is that nobody wants to die. So how do you refresh ideas? And especially here I am promoting an idea, uh, promoting a philosophy where you know, now instead of being a senator for eight terms or a president for, you know, you can now be somebody who lives and continues to be in the political cycle, never changing the system whatsoever. And of course, the greatness of this, the system that we all live in is that it changes, that it, it modifies, it improves itself, it evolves. So yeah, this is a giant catch-22 for me. I don't really know how to, how to handle it. I support term limits for one thing. Term limits means any government position has to have a limit of how often you can serve or how much you can serve. In the cases of certain like senators, you can serve indefinitely. Luckily, with the presidency in America, you can only serve eight years. But I think term limits all across the U.S. Congress and all across any kind of political realm is absolutely necessary so that you have different politicians that enter. And just so you know, I also have a completely, and this isn't very libertarian, but under the Transhumanist Party, I had a policy of saying we must also take a cross-section of people and stick them into government, even if it requires legal mandates. I cannot imagine that right now, 40%, uh, for about 41% of the U.S. Congress are attorneys in, in you know, United States Congress. And I've you know, said this again and again, lawyers think a certain way, those, that certain way is not very beneficial 
for the, the mass of people. I think we need carpenters. I think we need nurses. I need, we need journalists. I think we need doctors. I would like to take a cross-section of the different careers that are out there and mandate it that they serve in the U.S. Congress and serve in government so that we don't just have lawyers you know, dramatically running the countries. I think um, if we took people from other fields of life, we'd have a very different thing. I also think it might be necessary to mandate that women, 50% of women, at least must serve, or at least something that's equivalent to whatever the population is. Maybe it's 51, 49%. I do not like the idea that we have a bunch of old, rich, white men running our country. I think that's been one of the most stifling uh, things that humanity has kind of, at least the United States, has, uh, has had to suffer under. Completely agree. But to run the experiments you're talking about means flipping the system on its head. Now, that is happening in some of the, the blockchain and decentralized type movements. I'd like to get your thoughts on that and where those potential movements could head and converge with the things that you're talking about. Well, you know, bl- blockchain is, is still to be seen what it can do, but it's showing every promise of being revolutionary in terms of where the world can go. When I spoke recently at the World Economic Forum, the Global Futures Council in Dubai, blockchain was the talk of the town. And uh, I am a big believer in it. I understand it's still taking time to work out the, the little things that, you know, all these radical technologies do, but it could be as big as the internet. So um, I'm a big believer in it. I also think there's a lot of other different things. You know, this may sound a bit strange, but as a libertarian, I've written about the idea that freedom can better be achieved through radical transparency, not through radical privacy. And it's not that I'm against privacy, but, you know, when you look at historically what privacy is, it's somewhat of a bourgeois concept. It's somewhat of an idea that really the wealthy put forth, and that's why we have it here today. Whereas I think radical transparency, both in the government and also to people, might be something that would, for, for starters, dramatically lessen crime, but also increase our ability to be very socially liberal and socially tolerant of others from the simple fact that we all can see what everybody else is, is doing. So despite my libertarianism, I have advocated saying that the true liberty is actually better served by a much more transparent society. And of course, technology brings that transparency to us. Assuming we can get out of our filter bubbles. Yeah, well, that's the big problem is really, you know, we're being controlled. Our, our, our social media and everything's done through these giant conglomerates and uh, corporations. And, you know, they're determining right now a lot of how we express ourselves and how we're seen. But I'm hopeful that blockchain is going to be something that's so decentralized that maybe our social media experience and our this transparency I'm speaking of becomes almost like an open software movement where it's just completely decentralized and there's nothing in the way of it. So whether you choose your privacy or complete transparency, it's something that's much more of your own volition than it is right now, let's say through Facebook or Google sort of watching and controlling us. It would be good to have options. The problem I see is that most people don't even realize options are valuable and worse yet, are willing to give up all of those options for a one-second immediate gain. It, uh, it's a little bit of a catch-22. The people that realize it's a problem are the ones who are already economically successful enough for it not to be a large problem, but it, it does create a bit of a divide. I want to talk a little bit now. So you've been talking about life expectancy and how that will be increasing. Give me some predictions based off of some technologies that you're looking at and working with now, and then maybe a little overview of what you do to stay healthy. Sure. Well, you know, the most important technologies right now in the transhumanist world, in my opinion, are ones that are extending lifespans. And there's a couple of different drugs coming on the market. I think there was two FDA approved this uh, the last six months that are some of the very first what we consider anti-aging drugs. And um, but and so I, I think those will be big hits. But I think more importantly, like what the technologies I really see as revolutionary deal with bionics and bionic organs. Most people f- die from organ failure. So we're in the kind of a, this this age 
where in the next three to five years, you're hearing this already, there's robotic kidneys, there's robotic pancreas, but really it's heart disease that kills the number one killer in the world, kills about a third of everybody we know. So it's really the robotic heart that becomes, I think, the holy grail of modern medicine and starts to change almost everything that can be out there. Besides the idea that you can control your bionic heart, you know, you can slow it down when you want to sleep, you can speed it up when you want to have crazy sex or do stuff like that or go surfing. But the idea is really, we need to start to look at replacing our organs with something that's better and um, something that's probably machine-like, but something that might also just be entirely synthetic biological material. But the point of the story is really that we are starting to introduce those things there are a number of companies, dozens of companies out there that want to bring in these bionic organs. The problem is that the process of getting them approved is so long and laborious, and I completely oppose this laborious process, um, especially from a libertarian standpoint. But I think that's the things that over the next 10 years, you're going to hear a lot about. When do you electively go in and replace your heart or replace even an eyeball, something that probably will definitely happen within 10 years? We have some people already replacing eyeballs uh, that are have you know bad eyesight or whatnot with FDA approved uh, mechanisms. But what you know to answer the other part of your question outside of bionic organs, which is the one that I really love to promote and say we need more investment to, is uh, I'm at 45, luckily not having to suffer anything major. So I try to run a lot. I work out all the time. I'm still pretty big on swimming, at least a few times a week. And um, I would say uh, you know other than that, I just try to eat well. I don't eat too much meat if I can avoid it. I'm not a big meat eater, and I'm uh, I, uh, I also try to avoid synthetic foods. Uh, you know, anything that's organic is definitely better for you, in my opinion, rather than a bunch of drugs being used to create crops. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'll take nootropic pills and uh, sometimes I'll, uh, I've even done some stuff like neurofeedback. Uh, but, you know, mainly at, at age 45, I just try to stay healthy by exercising and eating properly. Meditate? Say it again? Do you meditate? Oh, I'm sorry. Do I meditate? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. So I used to meditate. The problem with meditate, <laughs> the big problem with meditation, and I would like to meditate, is that, wow, I can barely find five minutes anymore to do anything. I'm, I'm so always behind. And I now have two kids and married and all these other businesses and whatnot. So if I was living in a perfect world, I would have more time. And I think I would very seriously meditate. I did, used to. I used to in my 20s. And it was great. I hear the saying is something to the effect of if you can't find five minutes, you should meditate for 10. But I'm not, I'm not great at it either, so I can't really talk. So um, it seems like you're biggest on bionics in terms of life extension. Why that versus something genetic engineering, CRISPR, or potentially even uploading consciousness? Well, so genetic ed- edit, you know, editing and CRISPR-9 would probably be the second and probably very close in terms of what is better than bionics. The problem, though, is with CRISPR is we really haven't even though we know it's the most important science of the 21st century, and certainly I think more than AI, more than bionic organs, whatnot, we still haven't figured out as a society if we're going to move forward with it radically fast. And we also aren't sure, given how radical it is, that we can like literally grow eyeballs in the back of our head and things like that, whether we can use it to actually reproduce organs. But in the end of the day, I still don't want another Zoltan heart. I want a machine heart that's going to be far superior to my heart. I want an eyeball that has the telephoto vision of, you know, 50 miles versus my normal eyesight and microscopic vision. I, you know, I mean, the, the, there's no question that while biology is good and we can make biology better, I think in the end of the day, it's always going to be something machine and ones and zeros connected to the cloud that's going to be the most sophisticated. And uh, so I'm still <laughs> holding out for the bionic heart rather than growing either through genetic editing or, you know, through 
uh, organs of pigs, which I have a friend who, who, who runs that kind of company and these kinds of things. I mean, these are, these are great ideas and they're, you know, they're definitely important to pursue and money should be going into them. But I'm still a big believer that I want, I want actual metal and bionics and internet and DNA, and I'm sorry, and ones and zeros inside my body and not just uh, biological reformations, whatever we get from genetic editing. As long as you never go through a really big magnet, you're okay. Yes, I, yes. <laughs> I want to talk about now. So if, when people do start to live longer, A, when do you start to see these life expectancy gains start to happen? And B, what happens as we have a planet with more people? Well, I think the life expectancy gain is happening dramatically already. I know the statistics say that, you know, in the last two years, Americans are living less than ever before. But I, I think that that's a skewed statistic. That is because of obesity. And, uh, you know, I think anyone that's a transhumanist that really is actively engaged in these technologies that works and has even just a little bit of money is able to live a dramatically longer because they're able to make better health choices, get better health care, better things. There are a lot of people that, a lot of Christians out there, a lot of religious people that just could care less about living indefinitely. And what they like to do is eat at McDonald's all day long and, or whatever they do, and they just don't care so much about their health. And that's why obesity is such an endemic, you know, epidemic in America. And um, this is, again, why I'm trying to spread transhumanism. I kind of feel like if I go to those people who are dying earlier than ever before, not than ever before, but in the last two years, America's uh, mortality rate, you know, the, the lifespans have actually dropped. It's been very sad. And that everyone keeps telling me, say, oh, well, look, the life in- extension industry is failing. But that's not the case. The case is there are more and more people living beyond 100 years than ever before, and now even beyond 110. A lot of it just has to do with resources. Of course, that's a whole other question and, and a bag of worms. But uh, the reality is that I think every single year that you gain now gives you an opportunity to live another year. We're in this um, incredible moment in time when essentially, if you can stay alive the next 15 years, you have a very good shot of staying alive as long as you like. And um, so it's critical that whoever's alive now remains alive, because I think we're right at the edge, whether it's bionic organs, it's genetic editing, it's even uploading your mind. Okay, maybe that's 30, 40 years off still. But we are at the cusp of a huge amount of medical transformations that will make us live dramatically longer, as long as you have access to the healthcare and to that technology. Which brings up some interesting points. Essentially, it feels like we're maybe, especially as genetic engineering comes online, and becomes more and more widespread. Obviously, it's going to start with the super rich first, the ones who can afford it, who hopefully bring the price down. But it brings up the question of different species of human, which I think we are moving towards, whether that happens once we're interplanetary or whether that happens on Earth is another question. I don't know if you have any thoughts. Oh, well, there's no question we're moving to different species. And I, you know, I was asked yesterday by the um, Adriana, the BuzzFeed reporter, and she said, well, should people have a choice to not just continue to die? And I said, of course, of course they will. And People, I think people should always have a choice to remain totally human and, you know, go on their lives just like they're doing, just in the way that we would let people want to do that now. There are Amish in America or whatever that, you know, still don't want to use electricity. And I think that's fine. Everyone should have their choice as long as they're not harming children or something like that. But, you know, it, unfortunately, the difference between, uh, let's say, an Amish person and somebody living in San Francisco in a skyscraper is not nearly as much of a difference as myself and whoever I'm going to be in 30 or 40 years when I probably have half my body is cyborg parts and I communicate directly online in the cloud with my brain and maybe even teleportation. I I mean, who knows how far we take things and certainly interplanetary travel and whatnot. So there's all these other things that are going to happen. So the, the, the divide between who we are today and who we're going to be in 50 years is going to be so much more dramatic than who we were 50 years ago and today. 
And I think it will be clearly a new species and uh, probably something called transhuman. And um, we have to be very careful about that because uh, it's going to be almost like godlike people, these people that have these new types of technologies inside themselves that live indefinitely, that don't get disease, that have endoskeleton parts that allow them to lift five tons above their head when, you know, your neighbor can only lift his, uh, you know, his, his 200 pounds or whatever, maybe. And with great power comes great responsibility. That will have major social implications. So I've, I've heard it said that we're living in the most equal time in human history. If you look back a thousand years, the, the differences were just enormous. And this may just, be a, this may just be a blip on the radar. We may be moving back to a time when humanity becomes significantly more unequal. Is that what you see? Or are you an optimist? Well, <laughs> I'm an optimist. And I fight for more equality, especially since I've been seeing less equality over the last 10, 20 years. But I also see that living standards for even the poorest around the world are getting better and better. And that's always because of science and technology. I think one of the bigger questions I have is, you know, if people become like godlike, transhumanists, and others choose not to, how do they treat one another? I think if we get to a point when everybody has so much respect for any type of other species, then, you know, almost in like a Buddhist sense, then we're fine. Everybody, some people can be gods, some people can be humans, other people can be whatever. And you have to understand, it's not just between transhuman godlike people. It's also between uh, people becoming different types of biological beings, you know, through genetic editing. I mean, I have friends who want to become fish and that's, you know, how it is. We have the, I, you know, the possibility of my cat died about two years ago. And I thought very seriously about cryonically freezing it in order to bring my cat back since I loved it so much. But the problem is that by the time I brought it back, I'd be able to put an implant into my cat's brain and make it connected to the cloud. And that cat might have the same sophistication as myself. That's a very different relationship than I've ever had with my cat. And the point of the story, though, is it's not just humans going to be versus transhumans. It's, uh, you know, this interspecies kind of thing that can happen and beyond genders, beyond sex, all these other things. Whatever happens, though, I think as a species, we should continue to fight for equality because equality has been very fundamental for economic growth, for liberal societies, and for, and for general happiness around the world. I'm hoping that we continue down a path where we can be a society that becomes more advanced spiritually. And what I mean is like a society that would never do something like slavery, a society that thinks rights should be applied to all thinking people, you know, no color, no ethnicity, no religion should ever get into the mix on when we judge people. We should just simply try to extend rights to everybody. And I've been very appreciative of democracy and how that's unfolded. I know that the future is going to be challenging and I wonder where it'll go myself. I hope we'll continue to advance in a proper and respectful way. I think those are very bold statements. I would very much like to share your sentiments, but it's very hard. I think the way we have communication currently is breaking down because we want, like to, the problem is humans like to find borders with other people. We like to have an us and them because we're evolutionarily incentivized. If us, if we win, then we survive. It, uh, it becomes interesting now that evolution is no longer relevant. We're engineering our own evolution faster than evolution is happening it creates all of those dichotomies that don't quite work. Yeah, no, and, and, and I'm, you know, I'm an optimist, especially as I'm a, a politician that trying to be a politician at the moment. And as you know from my, uh, if you know my novel, The Transhumanist Wager, it's not as optimistic, even though it's sort of like in the end, Jethro, the main character, forces equality and democracy, at least to some extent. But his three laws of transhumanism are very set up for that the ruling elite can take advantage of them. And um, 
I'm, I guess I'm hoping that as we move towards these radical technologies, it might be democracy that can save us as people vote to say, well, if we're all connected to the cloud or we're all connected to these things, laws become inside our brain, things, certain things that we can't do, like take advantage over entire other populations and whatnot. And, um, you know, that's, uh, that's going to, I think that's going to be one of the most interesting questions of our time is how does this all play out? Yeah, same thing question with artificial intelligence is the very first real AI care about humans or will it actually become more of a Terminator style thing? And maybe it'll be more favorable towards other AIs and not humans. And, you know, these are endless questions. Even what do some humans who merge with AI, are they AI or are they mostly humans? The questions are endless, but the morals are, are, are incredibly tricky and challenging. It is incredibly tricky. I heard Sam Harris talking one time about the concept of uploading the consciousness and the thought process being, well, if the brain is a bit like neurons, which is a bit like neural networks, we can upload one neuron at a time and slowly become into the cloud, so to speak. The challenge I see with the thought process of uploading into the cloud is if you are doing something like that, it's the same concept as your hair. Every day your hair grows. You don't notice it's any longer or shorter. One day suddenly you have an afro. You don't see how the changes happen. And I think that humanity needs to make sure that as the small changes are happening to us internally and externally, that we stay in tuned with that so that we don't arrive somewhere else and be shocked at the conclusion. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And if you don't see the change, I mean, wisdom comes from change. Knowledge is really easy to acquire. We all can get knowledge anywhere from Google and whatnot. But the wisdom comes from seeing that change and how that evolved and why it evolved and whether it's disadvantageous or disadvantageous to one. And um, I think ultimately speaking, you know, it's, it's a very tough process, but I'm hoping with, again, this kind of goes back to this idea I told you about earlier that I know a lot of libertarians and a lot of other people are very much against total transparency, but I do believe that total transparency, our salvation might literally lie in it, both transparency for the government and for ourselves might literally lie in, in completely and total open society where you can easily see people doing bad things and call them on it and stop them immediately. And um, I think that's, where morals may come in, not necessarily through us stopping ourselves, but through society as a whole, being able to stop somebody. And um, I'm hoping, you know, again, this kind of goes to this crazy transparency idea where in, in the future, everybody might be visible to everybody else so that we're able to, I guess, control people better and make sure nobody does the wrong thing. Communist utopia? It could be. It could be. And I, I don't like to use the word communist because that sort of entails to me a financial system. We might still have capitalism. We might still have a, you know, competitiveness and stuff like this. But I think when you talk about, you know, the, the mind hive, this idea that we're all interconnected, there might be a lot of, you know, I mean, when people do bad things, they usually do bad things in the dark. They usually do bad things behind fences. They usually do bad things when they think nobody is watching. As soon as you put a camera in a very public area, the, the amount of crime, the amount of bad things drops precipitously. And, um, I tend to believe that our free, we might have much more freedom in a world where we're completely observed rather than, because we won't, you know, we'll know better than to do things. We'll have to think, okay, wait a second, I'm not going to do that because my neighbor is going to watch me do that or whatever. And I think, you know, I understand there's limits to this. I'm not saying this is a perfect philosophy, but I do believe that there is an argument to be made that a more, a new moral order could be achieved, one that really guarantees all the freedoms we want, but also places a lot of kind of social limits on the bad things that can be done against people individually. And actually, if you look at the non-aggression principle, the core of libertarianism, it also would, it would also be able to serve this idea of completely transparent society. I mean, we all want a transparent government. I, I mean, I, if, 
I've said this before. I think the president ought to have a camera on his on his button that shows every little thing that he's doing. And I think every police officer in America ought to always be at every single moment filmed and to have their camera on so that we know if you serve the government, you're in a public domain, you ought to have complete transparency. It's really that lack of transparency that creates a lot of the problems, a lot of the racism, a lot of the social injustice that we see and the mistrust that we have of government. But if, if there was complete transparency, we'd be able to say, hey, you did a wrong thing. We saw it right here. And now you're in trouble. And um, so as crazy and as strange of an idea as that sounds, you know, it, it's, um, it's something that I still believe could be very helpful in moderating our future as we become sort of godlike transhuman beings and have the possibility of taking over the poor or hurting the poor or taking advantage of them. This might be a real, the real ultimate way of democracy might be total transparency. It's a very interesting concept. It's both scary and interesting at the same time. I don't know where that would head, but I know it would be a, it would be a big kick in the butt for what we've got currently. So you're running for governor now. Tell me a little bit more about how that's going, why BuzzFeed's interviewing you, if that censored any of what you were saying. You were talking about self-censorship a little bit. Talk a little bit more about where you're headed, what the process is like, and what you want to achieve. Well, sure. You know, I'm, I'm running to spread values of both freedom, uh, values of technology and science. I'm also running because I just think in America, we have a two-party system between Democrats and Republicans, and it's just very undemocratic. It's rather unfair that those are the only two choices you get. And most people are totally dissatisfied with the system. Or, you know, at least 35% of people are saying, ah, I don't associate with either of those parties, which is, you know, 35% is more people than voted Trump in to become president and the most powerful person in the world. So the point is that we, as a society, I think, need other individuals running on different platforms. And I try to bring in the transhumanist libertarian platform, which is essentially technology and science can help the world, help politics, help people's daily life better than anything else that I know of. And I'm the candidate that promotes those ideas. And that can be anything from, you know, using blockchain technology to lessen bureaucracy in government. It can be things like um, automatic machines to pave roads. So we don't have to pay so many employees and so much large government doing things. It can also be different types of algorithms. But I'm also a pretty normal person where I talk a lot about widespread automation is coming. My major platform, my gubernatorial run is my federal land dividend, but this is also called a basic income. We have about uh, 150 trillion, maybe $200 trillion worth of federal land in America that is broadly unused. And that is enough to lease out and pay a basic income to all 325 million Americans between around $1,700 and $2,000 a month. And that would eliminate poverty in America. We have major poverty in America. And, uh, you know, in California, <laughs> we have literally about 25% of the state is living in poverty. So it's an enormous amount, 13 million people. So my federal land dividend uh, or libertarian version of a basic income can solve that. It can also solve the healthcare crisis because it gives people more money to afford private healthcare insurance. But, you know, beyond that, I'm, I guess one of the big things I'm also a supporter of is drug reparations. I believe in decriminalizing all drugs in America. I think just people should be able to do what they want. And I think and all the money saved on the war on drugs should go towards rehabilitation, getting people off bad drugs that, that hurt their lives. And I also believe that people that have been busted for marijuana should have maybe money paid back to them to the government if they lost assets or they had to pay too much money to the court system, especially now that marijuana is essentially becoming legal in many places in the United States and probably will become legal by the end of the next two years across the entire country. So these are just some of the platforms. It's sort of a, a mix of transhumanism. It's a mix of libertarianism. It's a mix of science. It's a mix of just sensibility. But I always try to say, you know, I try to use the scientific method to make all my decisions. I never try to make personal ones or subjective ones. 
I just try to say, what is the best for the people and how can we best achieve that? And, um, you know, what are the algorithms for doing that? And that's something that not enough people are asking. That's a big part of the reason I wanted to get you on. What is one topic that you would like to see addressed on the podcast and who would you like to hear speak about it? Oh, who do I want to hear speak about it? Uh, well, you know, I, I, to be honest with you, what I'd love to hear is, uh, and I think, uh, I don't know where you're broadcasting from exactly, but I think one thing that'd be very interesting, a book came out just today. I was going to release it probably the next few days between Anne Rand, her writings, and post-humanism or transhumanism. And I think, you know, we have a four or 5% following of people that really, really like, a lot of libertarians especially that like Anne Rand, and yet nobody has really written much about her ideas of objectivism and the new world. And I was a big student of Anne Rand for many years, and while I like her work, I have always been saying, my gosh, she's totally out of touch with what the future is. Her A equals A is not something that's compatible with modern physics. But none of the major Ayn Rand players will, will you know, <laughs> debate me or, eat or work with me on this because they're so stuck in saying that she is, her objectivism can't be changed. And I keep saying, no, 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 my God. Transhumanism changes all of objectivism. So if you had a chance, I think that'd be a very popular podcast because more and more people need to, to talk about it. And like I said, I, I really like the work of Ayn Rand and objectivism. However, I think transhumanism changes a huge amount of the equations. Ayn Rand never considered that robots would end capitalism. Ayn Rand never considered a whole bunch of the different things. So I think that would make a very popular podcast. And yet nobody has done it. This book that I saw today was the very first time someone had addressed this issue. I mean, you have to understand, President Trump is an Ayn Rand fan. I mean, these are any, many of the, the world leaders, if you ask them what some of their favorite books are, they'll list her books she wrote. And yet nobody is discussing the transition between transhumanism or the future and some of her writings. And I think that needs to be addressed. It's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity to really not only show her flaws, but also to praise her and show how good she had done, but there's so much more to be done. I listened to a podcast recently. I haven't read Ed and Rand personally, but the, the, the host pointed out something that in the, in the novel, none of Ayn Rand's, whoever the, the higher order beings are, not a single one of them had children and that it was not exactly geared towards uh, libertarianism. It was more a satire played off of that because the, the chosen ones, so to speak, didn't have the one true, the one true happiness of humanity, which is having children. It was, a, it was a very interesting take and something not a lot of people talk about. I'll see if I can, I can set up something, but I would need someone smarter than me to talk about it or to read the books more extensively. Well, if you have a chance to read any book, read The Fountainhead because it talks about the virtue of the artist and it's wonderful. Not exactly all her philosophies, but it's wonderful. And of course, that's the book, same book that Trump said was one of his favorite books that uh, Gary Johnson said was one of his favorite books. I mean, it's, it's a well-known book. But it's so interesting because I just talked to the BuzzFeed uh, feed reporter yesterday about the strange phenomenon that a huge amount of transhumanists don't have children either. And she had asked me, like, what is one of my appeals to the movement as, I guess, a public figure? And I said, well, I think I'm like the only one who's married and actually has children. And um, of all the kind of public figures out there, and that's a, it is something that I have found very interesting too, that a huge amount of transhumanists don't have any children. And it's perhaps because they think they're going to live 10,000 years and they don't want to have them yet, or maybe they're not attracted to them. But it is a strange thing, just so your listeners know that happens in our community too. And I, I know you got to get running soon. You have a campaign to run and quite a bit going on. Where do you go to on a daily, weekly basis to stay informed? Blogs, podcasts, newsletters, all the good stuff. Well, you know, um, I, I'll just be honest with you. I read the New York Times a lot. And um, partially because uh, I used to work there through their National Geographic Service. So, I, and I trust them. And I, <laughs> I know when I've been involved in a few of their stories, they fact check read religiously. They will call you and go over every single word of the story. 
before it's out to make sure it's accurate. So I, and I've been through that process both as a writer for them and as also as somebody being covered by them. So I trust that. I trust that. So that's often where I go for my first bit of news just to see what the headlines are. Then when I want to see the bias that's happening, I will juxtapose CNN and Fox on the internet. I'll just go look at the headlines at, at CNN and then I'll go look at the headlines at Fox and I'll know where the playing field is on fake news, on the on not necessarily fake news, but the manipulation of the news and things like that. And um, after that, you know, I, I then, when I really want to get a good in-depth story, I often go to reason.com uh, because I think the writers at reason really take a lot of time to present their libertarian point of view. And they're also not fans of any kind of like, they, they don't try to spin things. And they're willing also, I think, to laugh at themselves or say that, you know, this is crazy or something like that. But, um, you know, that's really where I, I would say I started the New York Times and then I go look at the other left and right, main right, left and right wing sources. And then, you know, of course, I have a, a few um, little frivolous places I go. But I would say Twitter is where I also now look for a lot of the, the temperament of the country itself, just what comes through my feed. Twitter does a very good job of putting out what, <laughs> almost in, in the sense of something uh, tabloid-like, but yet that's, that's very important. And, um, and so I get a good, a good amount of my news. And of course, now Twitter releases stuff almost first because it's not that they release it. It's that somebody else does and hits the news feed first. So those are, I say, you know, my first five sources. I wake up in the morning and, um, and I also go to uh, Wall Street Journal for business news. I, I still uh, take business pretty seriously. That's good. Have a president that knows what they're doing. I think it's important. Zoltan, thanks for coming on today. Where's the best place for people to find you online? You know, the best place is just to go to my website. It's ZoltanEshvan.com. And, uh, you know, I have a ton of my videos uploaded there and a ton of my articles and uh, different types of coverage. And of course, I have social media, Facebook, uh, Google+, LinkedIn, Twitter, all that other stuff. You can find me. And I wrote a novel, The Transhumanist Wager, which, um, if you haven't read it, is definitely a a very good introduction to transhumanism and also a bit of a controversial book and is fun to... uh, fun to see what, what World War III could look like in a transhumanist way. And I think, uh, yeah, other than that, it's just uh, you can Google me and find uh, whatever I'm working on, too. It seems to pop up a lot. We'll throw links and all the good stuff to the show notes. Guys, check them out. Say, hey, if you're in California, you know what to do. Zoltan, one last challenge for the listeners. Give them something, a takeaway, a to-do. Sure. If I'm going to challenge you, I'm going to say automation is coming. I was speaking at a high school yesterday. It's amazing to think that these kids think they're going to go to college, take out degrees, and then in 20 or 30 years, they're going to be doing the same career. There are robots coming for all the jobs. My wife is a surgeon. There's a robot coming for her job. I can tell you that. It doesn't matter that she trained 19 years to do what she does. With that in mind, think what you really want to do with the future if a robot was going to take your job and you had no way to just take a career. I support a basic income, so hopefully you'll still be provided for. But what do you really want to do with your life if it's not about working? What kind of art? What kind of others? you know, pleasures, traveling, music, whatever. And I think that's the central challenge that I I leave people with. And if you're like me and you don't want to die, then take a look into transhumanism because it might just be the greatest calling you've ever had. Take a chance. Dream bigger, guys. What can you lose? You only got one game to play. Thanks for coming, Zoltan. Thanks so much for having me. And cheers, guys. Hey, hope you enjoyed the episode. Did you know you can make a tax-deductible donation to Fringe FM to support our mission? Yes, you heard that right. Tax-deductible. You can support us in the work we do and all the good that we're trying to accomplish in the world, or you can save your tax dollars for the tax man. It's your choice. We like to think we're a bit more efficient and important for the world and hope you do too. Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a registered 501c3 nonprofit that's focused on advancing science worldwide. This means that you can write off your donation for tax purposes. 
and possibly even get your employer to match the donation. All of these would greatly impact the level of good we're able to do in the world and the quality of show we're able to produce. To learn more about supporting Fringe FM and whether your gift would qualify to reduce your taxes, please visit fringe.fm give. And really, if you care about our mission in the world and the work that we're doing, please consider supporting our efforts. You are quite literally deciding whether or not we continue and how much of an impact we can make. Again, it's fringe.fm give to learn more and support our cause. Thank you so much and have a great day. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.